Welcome to the Citizens Youth Podcast. Citizens Youth is a ministry of LifePoint Church in Vancouver, Washington. Citizens is a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, check out lpcvan.com forward slash youth. We're literally obsessed with talking about who the greatest is. It's in everything we do. We talk about it, we think about it, we tweet about it. And I think at the root of this question, I think at the root of our obsession is, the, is a smaller question, and it's this, like, can I be that? At the root of all of our discussions about the greatest is the little thought, it's the little wonder to go, can, can I be the greatest? What would it take for me to be the greatest? What would I have to do to be in that company? And so we're obsessed with the question, who is the greatest? Today we're going to settle that question once and for all. We're going to answer it, and we see our answer from a man named Jesus Christ, and he breaks it down in Matthew chapter 18. So let's look at what he says here as we get into our message today, the greatest. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pause there. We're talking about the greatest today. We're talking about our conversations and our questions, but we see that the question of the greatest is not really a new one. This book was written 2,000 years ago, and we see that the question of who's the greatest, this is not a new question. And so here are the disciples, right? And they're hanging out in the marketplace, let's say, or they're eating some falafel with Jesus, and, and they're looking around, and they, as they look around the courtyard, they, they see different groups of people. They see different occupations, different careers. They see different genders. They see different even religions and ethnicities. And they're looking around. And they realize that according to the world, in the kingdom of this world, it is very clear who the greatest is, right? In our world, I mean, like, the reality is the answer is pretty clear. We know that in the kingdom of this world, the greatest are those who achieve the most, who make the most money who have the least blemishes, who are the most athletic, who have the most skill, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? That's the way that our world defines the greatest. And so they're looking around and they're like, man, it's pretty clear here. But Jesus, remember his message, remember back to winter camp, right? In the book of Mark, Jesus comes and he's declaring that there's a new kingdom. Yes, we have the kingdom of the world. Yes, we have the kingdom of me. But Jesus comes and he's saying, there's a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples, they turn to Jesus and they say, we we know who the greatest is in the kingdom of the world, but tell me this, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How do you define greatness, God, in this new kingdom, right? There's two kingdoms here. And spoiler alert, over the summer, we're going to be taking a look at the tale of two kingdoms. Right? We're going to spend our whole summer looking at the difference and how people live differently in these two kingdoms. So we'll get there. But they're saying, Jesus, in this kingdom, in your kingdom, I'm just wondering, who's the greatest there? 
And his answer, his answer, if you're paying attention, the answer is kind of puzzling, isn't it? The answer is kind of puzzling. He's like, you want to know who the greatest is? Yeah, Jesus. All right, all right, all right. Let's look around here. Let me show you what the greatest is like. And so they're looking, right? And they're like, who's he going to point to? Who's he going to pick out? Well, look at those guys. They got a lot of money. Look at those guys. They look super religious. And they got the, the curls and the tassels. And they look kind of legit. But then look at those. And they're looking around. And Jesus goes, here. And they're looking around. They go, where? Yeah, here we go. I see one. Who? Where, Jesus? I'm looking around. He goes, no, no. Look down, right? And he comes and he, and he pulls a child, right? You're a child. Jesus said, come, right? No, right? So, please, right? Child. You're right, you're right, you're right. You're trying to be faithful to the text. It says he, right? Little boy, come here, Silas, right? Come here, huh? Such faithful middle school exegetes, right? And so he calls, he calls a little child. Take a seat, just sit down, just sit down, all right? And so he's, they're looking around, and they're like, they're like, where, where's the girl? And he goes, no, no, actually, look down. Look down. Not you, Silas, you're the child, right? He calls to him a child, and he says, whoever humbles himself, he calls a child, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. Actually, unless you humble yourself like this child, you're actually not even getting into the kingdom, he says. Unless you humble yourself like this child, you're not even getting into the kingdom. And so he's flipping right away. We see Jesus doing this here, right? He's flipping our thinking on its head. The greatest. Why does he point to a child? Well, children are, they don't, no, no, no. We can think of all sorts of things and that are funny. Well, children, but here's really what's going on here. And he makes it really clear. When he's talking about a child, what he's pointing to is humble trust and obedience. Okay? Humble trust and obedience. When you take a child, right, and Silas, I know you're not five, but imagine you're five, right? Can you imagine that? Imagine you bring a five-year-old. When a father, when a good father starts to direct his five-year-old or his four-year-old or his three-year-old, right, they, they have a confidence in their father, right? They follow the plan, and they, there's no, like, sneaking suspicion. You don't see three-year-olds walking around like this of, like, man, my parents think it would be a good idea to go here, but I don't, I just... Deep down inside, I just feel like my parents have no idea what they're talking about, right? Like, like three-year-olds are not marked by this, this sneaky, like, almost um, uh, like suspicion of like, yeah, I just don't know, man. My parents should probably let me take the lead on this trip, you know? And of course, we know that children, they can be rowdy, but, but I'm talking about at their heart. At the heart of a child is this humble trust and obedience. And so students, every single one of you in this room, this is our message at Citizens. This is why I do what I do. This is why we're here. Jesus came to earth calling you to follow him. Jesus came to earth telling you about this kingdom, telling you to stop living for yourself, to get off the throne of your heart, and to follow your father in heaven. He's calling you to live in the kingdom of God. But here's what we see, students, that to be with the father, you must be like children. Every student in here, this is not just for the old, every student, Jesus is calling you to come and live for the Father. But what we see by this object lesson is that you cannot be with the Father unless you become like children. Unless your life is characterized by this, this humility that says, Father knows best. 
unless your life becomes marked by this, 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 um, this obedience that says, hey, I'm going to follow his design. I'm going to follow his plan. Let me say this. Becoming a Christian is more than what I call easy believism, okay? Everybody say easy. Believism. And is that a word? I don't know. But the point is this, right? Christianity is more than just, just believe in Jesus. Just, if you just come on a Wednesday and put your hands at a 33 degree angle and make a grimace on your face, like you're in, right? Just believe. If you have enough feelings, like dude, if you go to enough Bible studies, if you sing loud enough, if you like hang out with enough Christian boys and girls, like just believe. But what Jesus shows us here, becoming a, becoming a child of God, coming into this kingdom is not just some easy peasy feeling believism. It's actually a life that is marked by trust and obedience in Jesus. Thank you, Silas, right? Unless, if you want to be with the Father, you must be like children. Your life must be characterized by this trust that says he knows best, so I'm going to obey his design. Students, in his kingdom, those who trust and obey are the ones who enter into life with God. Those of you who trust the Father and obey, you're the greatest. You're the greatest. Our culture laughs at this, don't they? Like, just the idea, everything we're saying right now is like nails on a chalkboard in our culture. We're telling you like, yes, just trust the Lord, right? You trust that your father in heaven knows best. You trust that your father in heaven is not misleading you or he's trying to take advantage of you. Like a child, you trust your father in heaven. And the world, they go, Are you, you're really going to do all that your God tells you to do? Don't be a child. Like, can you just think for yourself, you silly Christian? Like, a seriously, can you just, like, have a mind of your own? Are you going to do everything that your God tells you to do in his book? I mean, like, like, that's actually not healthy to obey like that. That's what culture says. And now, of course, listen, I, wisdom and discernment are, are, of course, those are musts, right? Wisdom and discernment is necessary. You should not follow any person blindly and ignorantly just because you feel it. That's, that's how cults are formed, right? <laughs> I'm not talking about that. But what I am saying is that when it comes to your Father in heaven, you can trust him. You can humbly follow his design with full confidence that he's not misleading you. You can have an eyes wide open kind of trust in God. He's good. Be like a child. Our culture, not only do they laugh at this idea, but, and this makes me angry, so if I get, like, excited, excuse me, our culture loves to steal innocence. Our culture loves to steal yours and anyone else's. They love to steal innocence. I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school, and I had a, a buddy named Buddy, right? And his, and his name was Buddy, and uh, he was a Catholic kid, pretty devout though, wanted to honor God, wanted to live a pleasing life. And so everybody knew him as the church kid, right? He's on the wrestling team. And so he quickly became, oh, buddy, oh, the church kid, don't cuss in front of buddy, don't do that. And he wasn't flaunting it. I mean, he never really tried to like live, like he wasn't like super religious to the point of shaming people. He was just who he was. 
And so his friends, they, it started just prodding him. But then eventually, that wasn't enough. They wanted to steal his innocence. He told me about a story, or he told me about a time. The wrestling buddies, they invited him over to their house for just a, a wrestling hangout, a wrestling party or whatever, right? But really, they got everybody to get there ahead of time for this plan. And when Buddy walked in, they tackled him. They tied him up. This is not just like, like oh, that was kind of funny. Like, they legitimately tied him up. They duct taped him to a chair, put him in the basement, and turned things on the television and just left him there for an hour. And they're all upstairs laughing, dying laughing. Our culture loves to steal innocence. Our culture will applaud and celebrate when a person gets wrapped up into sin for the very first time. We just, there's just like a misery loves company. You've ever heard of that? Sin loves company. And so our culture, they love to steal innocence. And what we're about to see here is that Jesus saves his strongest words for those who cause his followers to stumble. For those who cause people to sin, mm, Jesus has a lot to say to them. And so let's look at the next few verses here, right? Look what he says to those uh, who, who cause his followers to stumble. Whoever receives one such child, talking about his followers now, right? He's not talking about the children. He's saying, be like the child. And so any of, anyone who, who receives one such child, meaning my disciple, in my name, receives me. But, look at this, guys. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Those who lead the father's children to stumble will be judged. Look what he says here. He says, if you receive me, or if you, if you receive one of my children, right? If you show love and hospitality to one of Jesus' followers, he's saying you're showing love and hospitality to me. Do you see that? Does everybody see that? He's basically saying, however you treat one of my followers, you're treating me. So if you love them, you're loving me. Say clear, if that's clear. So what do you think awaits the person who causes one of these followers to stumble and to fall into sin? However you treat this person, however you treat a follower of mine, that's the way you're treating me. What do you think is going to happen to the person who causes one of his followers to stumble and fall into sin. They'll be judged. That's the language here. They'll be judged. You see the word here, uh, woe, right? He says woe a couple of times here. You know what woe means? Woe is the universal sign for judgment, okay? Everybody say woe. See, you said it wrong. You said it wrong. Because when you say woe, you're thinking W-O-A-H, Right? Like, whoa, uh, but it's just like the A-H is silent, apparently. I don't get it. But whoa, like, wow. That's not what this means. Whenever you see the word woe, that is the universal sign for judgment. And so we just came out of the Old Testament prophets, right? And we got our Malachi on, right? Whenever a prophet begins an announcement with the word woe, you know that a world of pain and suffering and misery are about to follow, Right? 
There's certain formulas in language, right? Like if I say once upon a time, what am I doing? Tell a fairy, fairy tale, right? If I say, dear Abby, what, what's that? It's a letter, right? If I say, good morning, citizens, right? What is that? It's a sermon, right? If you're a prophet and you say, whoa, this is not a birthday invitation. When a prophet began with woe, there's judgment here. He's like, woe to you. Like, bad to be you right now. That's what woe means. Woe to you. And so we see Jesus is here, and he's Jesus the prophet, right? He's a prophet. He's speaking prophetically, and Jesus is about to get his Malachi on, okay? Because look what he says. He says, woe to you. He says, it's necessary that temptation comes in this life, okay? Raise your hand if you're alive. Perfect. Just checking, okay? Some of you aren't sure, okay? But here's the deal. If you're alive, if you live life in this world, temptation is a part of life. That's what Jesus is saying. Temptation is necessary. It's a normal part of life. So temptations are going to come to sin, but woe to the person who brings those temptations. Woe to you who, who are tempting followers of Christ to fall into sin. That's what he's saying here. And so basically he's saying, woe to you. You will be judged. And you know how severe this judgment will be? Guys, 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 guys. Do you understand how severe the judgment will be for someone who causes a Christian to sin? He says the judgment will be so severe, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Oh my gosh, Jesus. You're so violent, right? <laughs> like, guys, this is hyperbole, right? Hyperbole, also known as hyperbole. But listen, the point is clear, right? Yes, he's exaggerating. Yes, he's, he's making a point. But here's the point. That judgment will be so severe that it will make drowning in the depths of the sea look preferable to the judgment that's reserved for that person. A millstone is a stone that they would use in, in agriculture, the way that they would grind up their, their wheat. They'd put it almost like a, like a sander. Yeah, you guys know what a sander is. But um, imagine two Oreo cookies, and you put them on top of each other, and you go, and then little brown crumbs fall off. There you go, that's a millstone, but it's huge, and it's way heavier than an Oreo. <laughs> the judgment that they will experience, it will make this look like child's play. Sam, I'm gonna be honest, you're kind of intense right now, we just came out of Malachi, what's the big deal? Sam, like, students, middle school students, like, what's the big deal about causing someone to sin? High, high school students, is, are there not like so many worse things you can do to a person than just tempt them to sin? I mean, like, aren't there so many worse things you can do? Students, there is nothing more cruel that you can do to someone else than tempt them to sin. Nothing. There is nothing more cruel and violent that you can do to another person than causing them to sin. And you know why? Because sin will wreck you. Sin will wreck you. Sin is like a fire, okay? Let's use some, some pictures here. 
Sin is like a fire, but here's the lie. We all know that sin is a fire, and so we're like, ah, okay, I know it's a fire, I know it burns, but here's what we think sin is like, right? We think sin, don't do this, I hate you with all of my heart. Right? We know sin burns, but we really think it's just like, it's just an isolated little flame. All right, yeah, it burns, but like, that's not really intimidating. I know sin burns, but like, at the end of the day, I could just take my fingers and just pinch it out. I mean, it's not just, it's just not a big deal, right? Like, yes, I know sin burns, but, but students, listen to me, students. The kind of burning that sin does, it's not just like a little match. It's like a forest fire. It's like a forest fire that will burn and destroy everything that is in its path. Sin will wreck you. Sin is the kind of fire that just, it consumes everything about you. Sin, it, it takes your mind. It clouds your judgment. It can destroy relationships. It puts space between you and God. Ultimately, it destroys your soul. Sin is a fire that will wreck you. And so here's what it's like. When you cause someone else to sin, it's like you let a fire in their basement, walk out, close the door, and leave. When you cause someone to sin, when you lead someone or tempt them into sin, there's nothing more cruel that you could do to that person because it's like you just set a blazing fire in their basement, walked away, and have no idea. Maybe. And friends, you know what that blazing fire is going to do? After it burns everything in its path, after everything is laying in ashes on the floor, you know what the fire does? It wants more. It wants more. It doesn't stop. Like a fire, it consumes everything in its path. In its path. And so that's why in this passage, and actually, you guys can pay attention because for the next three weeks, every passage that we talk about, sin is actually always talked about in the context of more than one person. This is not a passage on individual sin of just like, all right, I want you to be on the lookout for sin. No, no, this is talking about like, if you tempt others to sin, it's always talking about sin as more than one person because you need to understand something, students. You're not an island, okay? You're not an island. Your sin is not something that just stays in one little area and it's compartmentalized. You need to understand the influence and the responsibility that we have for one another when it comes to sin. That's why when it's talking about sin, it talks about you have the power to tempt others to sin. In a couple of weeks, we'll see that we have the power to restore people and to help rescue people from sin, right? You're not an island. You're not. Your sin affects everyone else around you. So students, do me a favor. Please stay away from sin for my sake. Stay away from sin because it affects me. Stay away from sin because we may both get wrecked. Don't say, no, you're just my pastor. I'm not even Guys, no, you're not an island. You cannot sin. You cannot light a fire in your soul and not affect the person next to you. You can't. And you guys know that I'm not lying because unfortunately as students, you have seen this firsthand. Am I right? 
You guys have seen the sin of your siblings wreak havoc on your whole family. You've seen, unfortunately for some of you, you've seen the sin of parents and the devastation that can cause on a whole family. You've seen the, the devastating results of how of one person's sin can destroy a whole friend group. And you're like, whoa, what happened? Sin. You guys know that I'm not, I'm not lying here. Sin will wreck you. And it will wreck everyone else around you. And it will burn like a fire until there's nothing left to burn. You need to understand your influence on those people around you. And so just a couple of examples here, right? Like, one of the ways that you are influencing people around you is through your interactions, okay? And so let, let's just think about it by example, right? Like, you, you come to another individual, and so through your actual interactions, you can tempt that person to sin. The way that I talk to a person, the way that I text with a person, the way that I interact with the person, the things that I lead them to do, all of those kind of things, the way that I talk around a person, all of these things, the, that's, the way, that's one of the ways I influence people. That's one of the ways you influence people, through your direct interactions. But there's another way. I think there's another way that we need to be on guard and understand that we're not an island, and it's through our example. There's all, like, dude, upperclassmen, I tell you this all the time in student leadership in the academy, there are little eyes watching you. Middle schoolers, there are little eyes watching you. Young adults, right? Staffers, there's little eyes watching us. Through our example, unfortunately, we can lead people to sin. We can tempt people. We can put something in their path that can cause them to stumble. You people watch your social media, guys. Ladies, people see what you post on Twitter. Guys, it goes even crazier. People not only see what you post on Instagram, they see what you like on Instagram. So when you're scrolling and scrolling on a late night Instagram run, like, people see that. And they click and follow and click and follow. You're sin. You're not an island. The way that you dress, that you're not an island. We need to be mature Christians and understand our responsibility and influence that we have on the people around us. And your purity needs to become a matter of my purity. And my purity needs to become a concern of yours. And his, his purity needs to become her responsibility. And her purity needs to become his responsibility. We're in this together. You're not an island. Sin will wreck you. And so far be it from us to be a group of people that lead others into that sin. So what do we do? Sin will wreck you. So what do we do? Like, where do we go from here? Jesus says there's really only one option, and he says it here. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. What Jesus is saying, he's saying that devastating sin calls for drastic measures. Dude, this is... This is 
We can't, we can't forget, this is not a lecture, this is a story. So think about it, right? Like, Jesus is there, he's doing this whole object lesson with children, and he's like, yeah, if anybody calls him to sin, and they're like, man, Jesus, this is kind of a bummer of a message, so what do we do? And he says, all right, all right, all right. Sin wrecks people, right? Yeah, Jesus, yeah, okay, okay. We should probably do something about it. Yeah, yeah. If we don't, it could destroy our souls and send us to hell, right? Yeah, yeah. So cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Ye- and if your foot causes you to sin, cut that off and throw, <laughs> throw it away, he said. <laughs> it's, it's like leaving no, what? Yeah, throw it away. Can you imagine the disciples' faces? Right? Jesus lost his mind. Wait, cut off his foot. Cut off my hand. Jesus, what? This is so radical. Everybody say hyperbole. Right? For response tonight, I will bring out the shears and we will come one by one. If you take this serious, you shall come. No, right? This is hyperbole. He's making a point. And with the point that he's making with this extreme language is so clear. His point is this. Destroy your sin before it destroys you. Sin will wreck you. Don't play with sin. Sin will wreck you. And so students, destroy your sin before it destroys you. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's his point through this exaggeration. He's saying sin can, it, it cannot be tolerated. Do you know what we do? Like, if we're being honest, you know how we think of sin? This is what we think of sin, like this. Right? And it's like, what an annoying little fly Shoo, fly, don't bother me, you know? And we just kind of have this view of sin. It's like, oh, what? Oh, it's kind of annoying. That's just, that's just a nagging habit. Or it's just my guilty pleasure. Sin is not like a fly. Sin is like a viper living in your basement, breeding every second. And every second that that viper is alive in your basement, it is multiplying exponentially, and it's that much closer to destroying you. What's your attitude towards sin? Sin is not a little fly, just a little nagging habit that should be shooed away, and oh my gosh, it's kind of annoying. No, no, friends, it is a poisonous snake that is breeding for the sole purpose of taking over your house and destroying you. And so if that's how we view sin, sometimes we're going to have to do something that seems radical, okay? Sometimes we may have to do something that seems radical. Because if we're, I mean, like, to be honest, is it radical, though? Like, is it really radical if what's on the line is what we're saying it is? If it's really aiming to destroy me, is this, isn't it kind of worth it? What's the alternative? If eternity is on the line, Jesus is saying, do whatever you have to do. And so students, let's switch the metaphor, right? Maybe Jesus wouldn't say to you today, cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin. Maybe if he was here right now, he wouldn't say, cut off your right foot. But what would he say that seems radical? What would seem radical? Like, dude, Jesus, cutting off your hand? Now, come on, nobody could do... What are the things that would seem radical? If your Instagram causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. (laughs) Everybody has Instagram, right? If your iPhone causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. If that contact in your phone causes you to sin, block it and throw it away. If that TV show causes you to sin, cancel it and throw it away. Oh, I mean, Sam, you're just getting radical here. Excuse me if I'm trying to destroy sin before it destroys me. Excuse me if I don't seem super hip and cool. I'm trying to not get burned by sin because it will wreck you. Students, what good would it be to have all the coolest technology and to see every TV show out there and to end up like with my soul on fire from the sin that I have allowed in? Drastic sin calls for drastic measures. Destroy sin before it destroys you, Jesus says here. No matter what seems radical. What is your attitude towards sin? Like, be honest here. Not just like, wow, great abstract question. I'll ponder that later. No, like, can we just family moment here? Do you feel like when you look at the sin in your life, those nagging habits or guilty pleasure television shows or those websites that I know kind of lead me to sin, but like, but they're so funny. Like, do you treat your sin like it's that little, it's kind of an annoying fly, just, My conscience is just so sensitive. Just go away. Do you treat sin like that? Are there sins right now that you're treating like that? Or do you, and that's what I'm trying to do successfully here, like, do you feel the weight of Jesus' words in your soul telling you to run, telling you to do whatever it takes? Jesus, he's so radical. Yes, because sin will wreck you. you students so what's your attitude towards sin don't play one of our values here as a community and and for those of you who are kind of newer and maybe some of you will even come to your first camp on the last weekend of July and you're going to be like in a cabin you're going to go this is so weird everybody is just so open and honest can't we just put on our camp faces and play games no (laughs) you know why because sin will wreck you and so one of our values here is confession, right? We get into a cabinet, and I got, you know, my freshman dudes, us eight dudes, yeah, don't wave at me. You're sitting in the back row. Where's the front row at, huh? Yeah, those freshman dudes, right? And so we get into a cabin together. Shh, sleep. We get into a cabin together, and we're just raw, and we're real, because one of our values is confession. Because we know, students, that when sin lives in the dark and it festers there, just like the viper in the basement, it will dominate us. But when we bring sin into the light, there we have hope. And that's one of the ways that we destroy sin before it destroys us. Sin will wreck you. Sam, your youth group, I mean, you're not really going to get a lot of students to come out here if you keep talking about this sin business. I'd rather seem uncool and warn you of the fires of sin than to have everybody here and like me, Right? What good is it if everybody likes me and they're thrown into hell? I mean, like, what? I would, the most cruel thing that you can do to a person is lie about the nature of sin. And so that's why I'm telling you what I'm telling you, because I love you. That's why Jesus tells us what he tells us, because he loves us. And because there's hope. Students, like, this is not just a moralistic lecture on behaving. This is a gospel-centered message of hope 
because every single one of you in this room, I don't care how young you are, I don't care how innocent you look, I don't care how adorable your parents say you are, every single one of us is born helpless to the power of sin and hopeless when it comes to the punishment of sin. Every single high schooler in here, when it comes to the power of sin, you are helpless. When it comes to the punishment that you'll face for your sin, you are hopeless. You cannot avoid either. And that's why we come here every Wednesday and we remind ourselves of the good news. That Jesus Christ, he came for this very reason. Paul says it this way. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, when you were slaves of sin, talk about helpless, right? Like you're in shackles. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You were a slave to sin. You were helpless. And the wages of that job was death. But students, Jesus Christ came not to tell you to be good boys and girls. He came to free you from the power of sin. He came and he actually took your punishment on the cross. You deserve that punishment. And Jesus Christ stepped up onto a cross as your substitute. He took our place. Well, what happens if I mess up after Jesus died? What happens if I mess up even more after he forgives me? Students, not only did he take away your punishment, he took away the power of sin. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, he gives you a new heart. He frees you. You're no longer a slave. Paul says it again. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and, eternal, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Students, Jesus came because there's good news. He wants to free you from your sin. He wants to free you from the punishment of sin. And he wants to free you from the power of sin. And so you know what your only response is? If you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian your whole life, if you're here tonight and you're middle school and you're like, dude, this is all new to me, I'm not a Christian. Do you know what? All, like, all of our response, we only have one option. Put your sin to death by coming to Jesus. Come to Jesus. When I was in middle school and I was struggling with sin, I had this very specific thought. I said, I cannot tell my youth pastor because I should already know better. I've been a Christian now for more than four years. I, I should be past this, and so I have to keep it hidden. That's a lie from the pit of hell. All of us. No matter if you're 15, 16, 18, 22, 30, we all have to come and we bring our sin to Jesus. And the good news is that he'll help us. He'll help us. He comes and he dwells with us and he gives us his presence and he gives us a new heart. And then students, we can come here together and we can stand and we can be honest about our sin, but at the same time we can praise God for the fact that we are saved and redeemed. And when you see people around you, and again, if you're new, you're like, why are people singing so loudly, right? We want to be a culture that sings loudly because we're kind of excited, because sin was going to wreck us, and then Jesus saved us, right? When we come in here, we're kind of not just like, yeah, whatever. We're kind of like, this is kind of a big deal, right? Because Jesus came to save us from our sin so that we could destroy it before it destroyed us. 
I'm going to pray for you students, but then as the band comes up, here's where I want you to respond. Over the next 30 minutes as we sing, and Max, maybe we just add a song on there, right? Because we've got to have some family business here. Maybe as we're, pray- as we're singing and praying, maybe, maybe you talk to a leader. Maybe you pull one of your youth staffers aside. Maybe you grab one of the guys from your small group. Maybe you grab one of the girls from your small group. Let's talk about it. Let's confess. Let's do whatever it takes to destroy our sin. Because if we don't, it'll destroy us. 